Good evening, and welcome to Point of View. I'm Chris Berg. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Monday evening. Lots to get to tonight. We're going to start with some actually some good news tonight. The COVID numbers in Minnesota and North Dakota actually seem to be trending in the right direction. Minnesota Governor Tim Wallace had a press conference earlier today talking about some of the new CDC guidelines regarding quarantine. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but I want to share with you some of the better trending news, if you will, both in North Dakota and Minnesota. This is according to John Hopkins University. You can see here, this is the seven-day rolling average positivity rate. And what I'm laying out here for you is where North Dakota's at. North Dakota's got the 13th best, in other words, the lowest seven-day rolling positivity rate right now in the country. Minnesota there, more in the middle, and South Dakota... South Dakota's got a ways to go. You can see the actual numbers here. South Dakota and the seven-day positivity rate's got a 49.72% positivity rate. Minnesota, 12, and North Dakota, 8.47. Great news there for North Dakota, because you may remember as of late, I mean, it was in, you know, 13, 14, 15% positivity rate, fairly consistently there going in the right direction. Minnesota Governor Tim Walls mentioned this today. I think one of the things that you and I want to be looking for is where do these numbers go towards the end of this week? Remember, that'll put us roughly that two-week time frame out from the Thanksgiving Day holiday when we were told not to travel and be around family because they were fearful of some sort of COVID spike. So keep your eye on that. Obviously, we'll keep you abreast on that. Um, later this week. As I mentioned a moment ago, Minnesota Governor Tim Wallace held a press conference earlier today with Jan Malcolm, the head of the uh, Minnesota Department of Health as well. Chris Erzman talking about the new CDC guidelines when it comes to quarantine. You may remember that uh, we've been told, hey, 14 days is the, the minimum amount you need to quarantine if you're around somebody with COVID, um, just in case. Now what they're doing is beginning to reduce that to 10 days with some stipulations. And then if you go get a test and test negative, it actually be cut down to seven days. I'm not going to get into all the minutiae tonight, but just want to give you some uh, groundwork there. If you want to look that up, obviously you can find more information there. But what I want to share with you is this. So Governor Tim Walls was asked about people that are crossing the borders because Minnesota obviously has got some of the more stringent um, lockdowns, COVID rules, if you will, regulations, emergency orders. And so you would presume if they've got some of the more stringent rules and regulations that they're going to obviously be doing much better than other states around them. Well, because there's more freedom in other states, you've got a lot of people in Minnesota going to North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, different areas. And so anyways, Minnesota Governor Tim Wallace was asked about that today. And I want to share some a little bit with you and then listen to what he says at the end. And then I'm going to share some more information with you. I don't know if frustrated is the word. I'm, I'm uh, disappointed when I see some of it, that, that there's just a, an attempted disregard. And again, I, I saw Dr. Burks, and she pretty solid and been through this a lot, was pretty frazzled over the weekend of, are we still debating whether these mitigation efforts work? Are we still debating whether this is the right thing to do? Uh, yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me lay out some clarity and specifics for you as to why people are still debating this. Again, we talked about this on Friday, but I asked you to ask yourself, if you look at Minnesota, what have the people of Minnesota been asked to do to stop the spread of COVID? I mean, the there is a laundry list from the mask to shutting down to kids not being, I mean, on and on and on. So you were told, hey, if we do these things, we're going to halt the spread of COVID and diminish it greatly. So I'm going to share with you two things that I think are 
fascinating. This I shared with you last week. Again, this is Jan Malcolm talking about roughly, you know, for the last five weeks or so. It's it's from like the beginning of October to the middle or so of November, I believe. But watch the colors in what I'm going to share with you, because that shows you the spread of COVID just from October to mid-November. And he's asking you as they've put these mitigation tactics in place now for quite some time in Minnesota. And he's asking, hey, are we, are we still going to? Yeah, here, here it is. And here on this map, you can just see as the, the weeks progress there, that's a five-week look. The darker, uh, the darker the color in the county, the higher the concentration of cases per population. And you can just see that map filling in over the last five weeks. Do you see the concentration of colors there? Again, think about all the mitigation things you've been asked to do in Minnesota, and yet that the colors there are becoming more and more dark because you're seeing a more and more density of COVID in those particular counties, and yet Governor Walls is going, hey, are we even going to debate these mitigation tactics? Yeah, we, we need to, and here's another reason why. This is from, uh, you can see last week, Tim Tom Hauser, excuse me, reporter out of uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and he's saying clearly, this is by no means a scientific study, but he wanted to just look at the data. On July 24th, that's the day before Minnesota mass mandate took effect, Minnesota had a 5% positivity rate. 5% positivity rate. As of November 28th, the positivity rate was 11.4%. And I just showed you at the top of the show, it's now at 12%, according to John Hopkins University, the seven-day rolling average. So again, Governor Walls, as I've said to you many times on this show, please question everything. They could be absolutely 100% right what they're asking you to do, but just question it. And I think you and I, based on what I've just shown you right here, have got every right and reason to question some of these mitigation strategies that he's just suggested we shouldn't be asking questions about. Again, follow the science. And somebody earlier today, as we were showing the press conference on social media, brought up a fantastic point because Governor Wallace was suggesting in his presser today, follow the science, follow the CDC guidelines. Well, if we were doing that in Minnesota, then the kids would be in face-to-face -face school. You've had the CDC director, Dr. Fauci, a uh, person that's one of the, 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 the testing masters on the White House Coronavirus Task Force saying, yes, it is okay and better for kids to be in face-to-face -face learning environments. One more thing I want to share with you from Governor Walsh's press conference earlier today, um, basically suggesting, hey, the reason that we're seeing some of the challenges that we're seeing here in America is because there was not enough leadership at the national level. There were several different ways we could have gone about this. One would have looked more like South Korea, where they have a healthy, vibrant economy and people were pretty much back to normal and they have fewer deaths than a medium-sized state does, even though they have 10 times the population. And they did it in a unified national manner. Um, and we took a 50-state approach. Um, again, I would just end with, I, I would I'd just love to see some national leadership right now. We're dying. We're dying by the thousands. People are getting infected. Our hospitals are overrun. We're deeply concerned how we're going to get the, the vaccines out and all of that. So he suggests that we do need a national strategy. We'd love to know your point of view on that. He just mentioned their vaccine distribution. Uh, Governor Walls also mentioned today that tomorrow uh, they will have another press conference regarding to sort of lay out their immediate plans, if you will, on vaccine distribution in Minnesota. Now, We've been talking a lot about some of the lockdowns and, and the what you've done in Minnesota to make a difference, what you've been told to do, I should say, to stop or mitigate the spread of COVID from shutting down businesses to not fully going to church and having as many people there as you want. And again, you, you know what you've done. 
but think about what you've done and everything that has happened here as far as the economy and people not being able to pay rent and mortgage and how that's impacted you. And yet, what are the politicians doing? We, we can't even get a another $1,200 check to come out of D.C. to help people that are struggling and battling right now because they're trying to abide by what the government's asking them to do. And yet you can't make ends meet. We know this in the service industry specifically. And I bring this up for a quick example. How's life going for some of these politicians? Check this out. I wanted to share this with you. Representative Elon Omar's husband, the new husband, received $635,000 in the COVID-19 bailout money for his consulting firm, which, by the way, works with Representative Omar. And she, through her campaign, paid this company $2.25 million just in 2020. So again, think about what your family is dealing with right now with the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the commitments that you've made to try to help mitigate the situation. Here's a representative Elon Omar's E Street Group. That's the name of the company. You can see here some of the numbers as far as the COVID-19 bailout money that has gone to his company. Can you say DC Swamp? I mean, this is why people are so frustrated and so tired of the swamp, because it feels like they don't remember that, hey, we're the people that voted you into office. We're the ones that voted you in there. Now, help us out if you're going to ask us to shut down, not go to work, put our kids out of school, all the things that you're asking us to do. With that being said, we know that one of the places that are really having a lot of issues is within the restaurant industry. And when the restaurant industry slows down, that ends up having an impact on our great ag producers. So earlier today, I had a chance to visit with the president of North Dakota Farmers Union, Mark Watney, about a recent op-ed that he and some others just put out. Hey, Mark, welcome back to Point of View. It's great to have you. And I want to just share with our audience real quick, you guys, meaning you, um, the president of National Farmers Union and also the restaurateur and co-owner of the Farmers Restaurant Group put out an op-ed today. It's up on our Facebook page if you want to see it, but it's titled, Saving the Economy Means Saving the food industry. I think everyone can appreciate somewhat how much restaurants are being hurt, but you guys did a really nice job in this piece sort of tying together, hey, if restaurants aren't open, you got to remember it's hurting our farmers as well. So what, what do you want people, the most important thing you want our audience to know from your op-ed? Well, I think the key to it is, is that this is all connected from the restaurant all the way back to the farm. And, and you got distributions, you have processors, you have everything in between. And you know, we're looking at almost 3 million people still out of work because we haven't been able to hire as many back. So um, agriculture suffering, we were getting huge payments was helping, uh, but for the long term, we're suffering. And then on the other end, the retail sector, specifically the restaurants, are trying to figure out how do we survive through this? And, and if we don't, um, even getting into spring where we have a potential of vaccinations and people coming back, uh, we may be down 100,000 restaurants, which will impact the marketplace. Boy, Mark, we had a gentleman on in Minnesota a while back um, from a particular association. He said, Chris, if this thing doesn't turn around, we're legitimately going to lose 40% forever, 40% of the small family-owned business and bars and restaurants and bars. And I just, I don't think people can fully appreciate that number. So what, what does that mean for our great egg producers? Well, it means uh, less market. I mean, less demand. Uh, you know, it doesn't come quite as direct, but it still is an impact. And, um, you know, producers, we need huge demand. We're such good at production here in the U.S. that uh, when you take a certain sector and, and take down that usage of food, 
uh, especially those things that are more direct, it, it can be huge in keeping the prices down, which that's what we're fighting in agriculture. We have low prices. Um, so I, I think this is really key and it won't recover quickly. Yeah, you'll probably see some rebuild of restaurants, but uh, when you have to start up from scratch, it's not that simple. And it, it, it will take a long time to build back the system we currently have. Well, and I think that, you know, if you're an entrepreneur or a restaurateur and you see the government can just come in and shut you down and then they're not doing things to help support your business, it's tough to want to make, you know, and take that kind of risk again. So um, what I'd like to know from you, this is something out of Politico's weekly ag piece. And they say, hey, this $908 billion package that's being talked about um, says it could allocate another $26 billion to food assistance and farm programs. Is that enough or what specifically would you like to see D.C. do to help our egg producers? Well, that's a good start for egg producers. Uh, you know, remember we're dealing with two issues with him. We still are uh, uh, balancing with the trade challenges, and then of course the COVID added on top. Um, you know, twenty billion gets us through another period of time, and, and then it begs the question of how quick this recovers. Uh, you know, we've been in a down in, down income sector since 2013. Now we did approach it after we got uh, forty percent of that income coming from the government, uh, but this isn't going to go away unless you're going to address the farm program and make it substantially better into the future. So, you know, you don't just get those markets back and you don't get rid of the old stocks. That takes uh, years for that to come back. So we're going to deal with this for time. So that's a good start from the, the PPP program that was given out to uh, restaurants that qualified. We need an additional one of them. Uh, they simply are, are biding time. And I know in our restaurants, we are, uh, kind of calculating how long can we survive with our current cash flow before we have to shut the doors. And, and we're getting down in that, you know, our ones that are performing the least or, or as poorly at the current time are, uh, you know, probably six months out. And, and that's not very far off in the grand scheme of things. No, it's not. And you brought something up, Mark, that I want to ask you about where, um, according to the USDA, you know, net farm incomes are actually going to potentially reach 2013 levels, which sounds good, but as you mentioned, 40% of that's coming from the taxpayer subsidies that have taken place. As you know, as well as anybody, there's a lot more people on the coast than there are in middle America and ag land. How much more of an appetite do you think some of the more urban um, representatives and senators will be able to stomach more and more tax money going to, to farmers? That's always the hard part, Chris, when we do these packages, and that's why you'll see some additional food programs along with it. Um, there, there's nothing better than the, the compromise necessary. So if you're going to give agriculture the boost, which tends to be in the center of the country and you know, at least large portion of it, you, you have to do something with feeding the people in those areas of urban settings. So. It, it's a balance. So that's where we have this, you know, huge difference from a $3 trillion package or not quite $3 trillion in the House now to, uh, you know, it was like $500 billion from Mitchell Connell's uh, perspective. And now the moderates had a, you know, 900 to maybe a $1 trillion in potential, $900 billion to $1 trillion. So that's what they're balancing. And so it needs to be broad-based or you can't get it passed. And, you know, we've never experienced a COVID world like this and, and hopefully we never have to again. But that we're going to have to make choices that normally you would not do just to survive and get our economy continuing to function trade. And I'm assuming that you will or are lobbying for Senator Heitkamp to be the uh, Ag Secretary. 
Well, I'm all about being uh, knowing people you know and getting right people in place because that's how things get done. And, and you know, she represented the state quite well. Uh, I think uh, you put her in place and with the people we have uh, in our Senate, uh, I think we got a huge opportunity of great influence. So definitely we're lobbying for her. It seems to be a perfect fit for us. So you mentioned people you know. I'm assuming you had a really good relationship with Representative Colin Peterson, chairman of the House Ag Committee. Well, I, I believe we did lose quite a bit, especially with the knowledge and the seniority and the ability to have the look of agriculture. Thank you so much. All right, stick around. We got a lot more coming up here on Point of View. As always, you can share your point of view with us. Email us, text us, leave us a voicemail. We're going to get to your point of view coming up right after this.